Well, good afternoon, and good to be here. We had a great men's retreat the last, uh, well, yesterday, I was going to say last few days. It was just one one long day. We talked uh, about humility and manhood, and it was humbling uh, and, and very healthy, I think, for our souls. I love you guys, and I'm thankful that we are united together in this uh, calling that Christ has given to us to belong to him and to be on his mission here in the world of making disciples. And the thing that unites this body together as one is Jesus Christ. Amen? And we have come together through the work of others who have shared with us a simple but profound message, a message that we talked about last week, which is something that we need not just at the beginning of the journey, but we need it week by week, we need it day by day, the message of the gospel. Paul talks to the Corinthians and he says, I want to remind you of the message that I preached to you, the message that you received, the message upon which you're standing, the message that God is using now to save you, to help you along the journey from here to eternity. And specifically, you might remember, the thing that we talked about was Paul's reminder to them of the essential, this essential tenet of the gospel, namely the resurrection from the dead. That Christ rose from the dead. He spends most of his time in verses 1 through 11 talking about the resurrection and the appearances of Christ to others after he rose from the dead. From the dead. This week what we're going to talk about is what if, let's just say, what if there were no resurrection from the dead? Let's just say. Let's let's imagine that. And in order to do that, let's set the stage. I'm going to read to you. Please join me if you will. If you've got a Bible, 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 15. And I'm going to just read verse 12 to you to set the stage. Here we go. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If the gospel proclaims that Christ was raised from the dead, that's what Paul did last week, he just established, you guys are with me, right? Christ died for our sins, he rose from the dead. Corinthians, you're with me, right? That's what he's doing in verses 1 to 11. If that's the gospel, if it's essential to maintain that in the gospel message there are two tenets, Christ died for sins, Christ rose from the dead, if the resurrection is essential, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Why are you preaching this in your church? Here's the teaching, it seems, that's happening in the church in Corinth. Once a human body dies, it cannot resurrect from the dead. In other words, there's no future bodily existence for us. That's As you go through this passage, you get the sense that the Corinthians are teaching there's no future bodily existence. There is no resurrection from the dead. Now, why would they teach that? Well, you might recall, I'm sure you do at this point, that the Corinthians have a, a messed up view of spirituality. What does it mean to be a spiritual person. We've seen it over and over again throughout the letter. Corinthians, like most people in the Greco-Roman world, could not conceive of a material existence in eternity. 
Greco-Roman way of thinking. Just didn't, they couldn't process that. They believed in a pronounced dualistic view of reality. On the one hand, you have the non, non-material spiritual world. This is what's really important. These are the things that are eternal. And on the other hand, you have the material physical world and in order to experience the real spiritual reality you need to shed the physical that's what they that's what they believe it's the fruit of platonistic thinking which was worked into their society deeply here's what plato believed he viewed that the body was the prison for the soul that's the word that he used and that death would finally set the soul free that's what they believe. That's what a lot of us believe, I think. That's a, that's a mentality. The strong dualism. The spiritual, non-material is good and pure, and the material is corrupted. So the Corinthians just couldn't fathom what it would mean to have a body after death. It sounds like, it sounds like you're reverting back to something inferior. If in the eternal state you get the corrupted thing back. A physical body. So they're teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead. Now you may remember from chapter 6 what this teaching produced in the church in Corinth. Chapter 6 turns out that the Corinthians believe God does not care about the body. They think that God is exclusively interested in the invisible personhood of the soul. And therefore, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. So you remember what they're doing? They're having sex with prostitutes. Because it doesn't matter. God doesn't care about the body. So some people in the church body, because of this view of spirituality, they indulge in fleshly activity because the body doesn't matter. Food, stomach's for the food, and the food is for the stomach, and God's going to destroy them both. That was their little axiom. Is that the right word? Axiom? That's the kind of that's what they said. The other thing that happens in chapter 7, same teaching, it produces a very different response. It produces asceticism. Putting off of physical pleasure. Spirituality is a matter of the soul. The physical is corrupt, so we're just not going to do things that feel good. So in chapter 7, Paul says, husbands and wives, you got to start having sex again. Because you're not having sex. That's not what spiritual people do. Okay, So a false view of spirituality is producing on the one hand asceticism on the other hand indulgence and so Paul says in chapter 6 verse 14 God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power in other words God God cares about the body you're going to have one for eternity remember God makes the creation and what's his declaration it is good Creation is good. So there will be a resurrection from the dead. And Christ's resurrection is proof of that fact. However, just for argument's sake, let's just say that Jesus did not physically rise from the dead. What would that logically imply? What if the Corinthians' teaching is correct? Paul wants them to think about this for a few minutes. What if the things that you're teaching about the future are true? Let's just play out that scenario and see what happens. And the rest of what we're going to look at today is based on that scenario. That's where Paul goes in this 
next paragraph, and then the paragraph starting in verse 29. So I'm going to give you six results of the Corinthians teaching that Paul just logically lays out for us in verses 12 to 19. Here's the first logical result of the Corinthians teaching that has somehow kind of spread its wings into the church body. If there is no resurrection, then first, Christ did not rise from the dead with a physical body. If there is no such thing as resurrection, then Christ did not rise from the dead. Verse 13. Pretty simple. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If putting on the physical resurrection is a return to corruption, then you, what you're teaching implies that Jesus Christ could not have been resurrected. That's the first result of this teaching. Christ did not rise from the dead. Second, if Jesus didn't experience a resurrection, as their teaching implies, then our present preaching is in vain. Here's what Paul says in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. In other words, the things that we taught you are empty. They aren't of any value. We told you that he rose from the dead. That's the gospel we preach. That's the gospel we're preaching. But in reality, if you're right, he didn't rise from the dead. So our message is as valuable as the teaching that what? The earth is flat. Nice theory. Not true. It's worthless. Our teaching is in vain if Christ didn't rise from the dead. Third implication. If Jesus didn't experience a resurrection, as your teaching implies, he says, then third, your faith is in vain. This is verse 14 again. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So not only are the things that we taught you of no value, but you believed them, which means that your Faith has no value. Does that make sense? I'm teaching you something. It's worthless. You believed it. Your faith is worthless. You guys remember Heaven's Gate? This was, what, 1997? The Hale-Bopp Comet is flying across the western sky each evening. Do you guys remember that? It had two tails. I don't know if you remember this. Well, there was a cult in, I think it was in California, called the Heaven's Gate Cult, and they thought that this was a... Uh, spaceship or something, and um, and so there was a there was a mass suicide, and and uh, they thought that that was the way that they were going to go to the mothership or something like that, and a bunch of people died. Okay. Their vain, their faith was in vain because their message was in vain because it wasn't true. And what Paul is saying is, if Jesus, if there is no resurrection, then what we told you wasn't true, and your faith is in vain. Fourth, if Christ has not been raised, as your teaching implies, then we apostles are false witnesses. Verses 15 and 16. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ, then not even Christ has been raised. So not only was our preaching in vain, not only did it have no value, but we were lying to you about God. Because we go everywhere telling people that he rose from the dead. And if he didn't, we're liars. The apostles are bearing false witness against God. 
fifth, if Christ was not raised, as your teaching implies when you say there is no resurrection from the dead, then your faith is worthless because you are still in your sins. This is a big one, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, the sin-cleansing work of Jesus Christ on the cross is only valid if he rose from the dead. There's no such thing as forgiveness of sin if there is no resurrection. There has been no removal of the wrath of God. There has been no atonement for sin. You're still in debt to God if Jesus didn't rise. And the importance of this, um, this is, I guess the importance of just pointing this out is that I think even for myself, I'm just a little bit corrected by this because uh, when we talk about the gospel, it's important to maintain the resurrection. Not only the death of Christ for our sins, but the resurrection. Now granted, when Paul preaches the gospel, there are times where he can uh, communicate it simply in these terms. Christ crucified. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's the gospel. Christ crucified. So, yes, you can talk about the gospel and focus maybe uniquely on the cross. But the reality is, if there was no resurrection, then the efficacy of what was accomplished on the cross isn't there. It's not valid. So the resurrection is essential. It validates the success of the crucifixion's accomplishment. Six, if Christ is not raised from the dead, as your teaching implies, then those who have died are gone forever. Verse 18. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Jesus' resurrection from the dead from the dead has incredible implications, hope-giving implications for those who are found in him. But if you didn't rise from the dead, there's no hope for them. There's no hope for us in the future. Death is the end. You're lost afterwards. Now your sins are still on your shoulder, and you're lost. Seven teaching is correct, Corinthians, then our only hope is in this life, and we are more pitiful than all other people. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. This is all we're living for. that's the case, then that makes a Christian's life pretty pitiful. Why? I'm going to come back to that in just a second. What, why, why is my life pitiful if there is no resurrection? I'll come back to that in just a second. Before I do, let's just admit that actually this is like a really depressing passage in the Bible. It's all, it's all negative, right? Like, I don't have enough of a problem with that already as a human being. This is just a very negative message. And it's exactly why Paul wants us to think about it. Because this is what you are left with if there's no resurrection. And the Corinthians just haven't thought it through. They just haven't thought through the implications of what happens if you deny the resurrection. What happens if you deny the physical resurrection? 
And the answer is you leave the faith. There is no Christian faith with the denial of the resurrection from the dead. But let's flip it around. Let's flip it around just to point out what the resurrection secures for us. In light of what we've just learned, if Christ did rise from the dead, then the apostles' preaching was not in vain. It's not worthless. It's valuable. If Christ did rise from the dead, then our faith is not in vain. It's not worthless. It's valuable. If he did rise from the dead, then the apostles are not false witnesses, but they testify of what God has actually done. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then we are not still in our sins. We have been forgiven. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then those who have died in Christ are not lost. They will rise again. And if we, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then our hope is not in this present age, but it's in the things that are to come. Amen? And he did rise from the dead. We believe these things, and these are our, these things are our hope, because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, let's go back to this statement. Here's where I want to kind of park the rest of our time. Um, I want to kind of put the rest of the sermon under the, the banner of why are we to be most pitied if there's no resurrection? What is it that makes us pitiful people if there's no resurrection? Is it, is it just because we have bought into a lie? Well, okay, I think, yes, in some sense, that's part of it. But I think there's something more to it. And I think we get some insight when we move on to verse 29. So we're going to jump ahead. We're going to skip a paragraph and we're going to jump ahead. Because in this paragraph in between verse 20 and following, Paul says, uh, here, here are, here, here's the reality of what Christ has done. But in verse 29, he jumps back to this topic of what happens if we deny the resurrection. So he states, so just for the sake of staying on the same topic, let's go to verse 29. What if you Corinthians are teaching this and the teaching is true? What if there is no resurrection from the dead? In the paragraph we just looked at, Paul provides several logical conclusions of that teaching. But what he's going to do in this next paragraph, verse 29, is he's going to say, if there were no resurrection, then our lives would make no sense. Our lives would make no sense at all if there's no resurrection. You would look at us and you, and you would say, you know what? That is a stupid way to live. If there's no resurrection, people should be looking at our lives saying, those people are stupid. They're pitiful. So let's look at how the Corinthians are living. Verse 29. Okay, this is tough here. Read this with me. Otherwise, there is no resurrection from the dead. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This is like preacher's nightmare of the verse. What does that mean? And I'm just going to say right up front, I can tell you how this is supposed to function in the argument, but I have no idea what Paul is saying right here. Which means we can say very little about this for certain. Here's how the argument functions. 
and I, you know, I think you'll see this, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then you wouldn't be baptizing on behalf, baptizing on behalf of the dead. Because when you baptize on behalf of the dead, whatever that means, it somehow implies a resurrection from the dead. And that contradicts what you're teaching in your church body. So why would you be doing it if there's no resurrection? You're doing things that don't even make sense if you don't believe in the resurrection. So that's how the argument functions. Does that make sense? You're doing something, if there's no resurrection, then what you're doing is just stupid. It doesn't even make sense. You don't even live in line with your teachings when you baptize on behalf of the dead. Okay, now, what does it mean to baptize on behalf of the dead? There are more than 40 different interpretations that you could look to find pretty easily about what this passage means. And Gordon Fee, who's a commentator on 1 Corinthians, says it's a pretty safe bet when you have 40 interpretations that we don't know what's going on here. It just, it, it just, it's a tough passage. It sounds as though the Corinthians are uh, baptizing people on behalf of other people who have died, and they didn't become Christians themselves, so the Corinthians are bab being baptized, so that somehow, hopefully... Um, when you baptize somebody on behalf of this person, they're going to be saved, or something like that. It's kind of how it reads. Now, if that's what the Corinthians are doing, which is kind of the most straightforward reading of the text, I think, then it, it, it could be that all Paul is saying is that wouldn't even make sense. Like, this practice doesn't even make sense if there's no resurrection from the dead, people. Uh, your beliefs and your practices are out of step with each other. Could be what's happening, but there's a really serious problem if that's how this text is interpreted. And the problem is that you would think that if that's what Paul is doing, that he would have taken this opportunity to address such a terribly misinformed practice. I think you'd at least just pause and say, hey, uh, and by the way, when you baptize people from that, you should just stop doing that altogether shouldn't do that. Here's the reason why. Uh, Paul knows that baptism is not a magic potion for saving people. And it's certainly not a magic potion for saving other people. You'd think that he would at least say something about how it, it's your personal faith in Jesus that connects a person to Christ. You have to have personal faith in order to be saved. You can't, you can't get baptized on behalf of another person. But as it is, he makes no critique at all. And though it's possible that he's chosen not to say anything, since his real point is simply to say that their actions don't match their teachings, it's unlikely that he would allow them to continue doing that without even saying a word about it. So that's what makes that interpretation tough. Uh, but we're really just without a, crew, a, a clue here on what he's doing. There are no historical examples of baptizing on behalf of the dead. Uh, not only is the practice never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, it doesn't happen anywhere else in contemporary pagan culture, nor does it appear in any other churches or Christian communities for centuries. And probably as a result of reading this passage and going, what is that? 
So there's just no, there's nothing historically to even compare it to to give us a clue. We're, in, we're totally in the dark on what what was happening in, in Corinth here. We don't know what's going on. Some commentators believe that the wording can indicate it's possibly a reference to their own baptisms, like you're being baptized on behalf of your dead selves, which is just a complicated way of saying, why are you even baptized? It's possible. I don't know. I don't know. But the point is, whatever it means, their lives don't make sense if there is no resurrection. That's the point. This is just one of those passages where we're going to have to be okay saying, man, it's tough. I don't know. Sorry to do that from the pulpit, but I have to. I'm not going to make something up and tell you. This is what you should believe. Okay, so that's what Paul's driving at. Your lives don't make sense if there's no resurrection. But that point becomes even more clear when you look at his own life. And he gives us a couple examples in verses 30 to 32. Here's how it reads. Why are we in danger every hour if there is no resurrection? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul lives a a dangerous life. He's given up everything. 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. I don't know why they don't just say 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Just once? Uh, Yeah, slow burner. Give me my background. Okay. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me for uh, of my anxiety for all the churches, Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul's life was painful. It was dangerous. And it was different. Because he believed that he didn't need to have his best life right now. He was willing to live a life that frequently required him to lay his will upon the altar and say to God, You can use my life for your purposes. I lay my will down, Father. I have desires, things that I'd like to do, a lifestyle that I'd like to live, things that I'd like to spend my time doing, a reputation I'd like to have, things that I'd like to provide for those who love. You think I get some strange delight in battling against these people in Ephesus. He's in Ephesus while he's writing this. You think I get some strange delight in in confronting doctrine, pouring my life out in opposition to all these people trying to love? You think I like doing this stuff? I have desires. What gain do I get as a human being here and now if I follow God's calling on my life? I have desires, but I swear to you, I 
die daily. I lay it down. I am not a slave to me. I am not a slave to my fleshly will. I am a slave of Jesus Christ, and His will is my command. And the reason that I do it is because I believe there is something better coming on the other side of the grave. What do I gain here for these things? The only reason I do it is because I'm going somewhere else. I'm rising back up someday. There is more to life than this. And because Paul believed in the resurrection, he lived a life that just simply would not make sense if there's no resurrection. He would have lived so differently if there's no resurrection. That's what he says in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's not more to life than this, you might as well live for what life has to offer. Party it up. Eat and drink while you can, because you're dead tomorrow. Do it. Don't be an idiot. The stupidest decision you could make there's no resurrection from the dead is live a moral life. People who truly believe in the resurrection are going to live like there's going to be a resurrection. Now let me ask you, if you really live like there's a resurrection and it turns out that there is no resurrection, what are people going to say about your life? If you really live like there's a resurrection turns out there's no resurrection. What are they going to say? That guy's pitiful. That was stupid. What a waste. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then we Christians are to be more pitied than all people because our belief in the resurrection has altered the course of our lives so drastically that if the resurrection were not true, we will have wasted our opportunity to live while we had the chance will have wasted it. Why stay in a hard marriage? Why deny yourself any sexual pleasure that you have? Why resist drunkenness? Why not live an extravagant lifestyle? Why not do anything and everything that you want? I'll tell you why. Because there's a resurrection coming. And you don't have to get it all now good question to ask yourself. Do you live your life in such a way that if there were no resurrection, others would look at your life and say, poor pitiful fool. Look at what he's done with his life. What a waste. Does resurrection make any difference in the way that I live my life? The way you live your life? That's how Paul ends speaking to these Christians who ought to know better. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning. Some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Don't go on associating and listening to these teachers who are denying the resurrection, guys. He's saying to the church, Come, please stop hanging out with these guys. Don't let them teach from your pulpit. Don't let them teach in the small group. Snap out of it. Wake up from your drunken stupor. (laughs) 
so pastoral. There's just too much at stake here. I'm thankful for this. You know, I'm thankful for some extended meditation on the resurrection for my own life. It's good to think about what's at stake. It's good to think about whether or not my life makes sense when people who don't know Jesus, when people who don't know anything about the resurrection, people who don't believe in the resurrection, it's good to ask myself, does my life make sense to them? Because if it does, something might be wrong. They should be saying, you're pitiful. Why would you do that? Why would you live that way? Let me ask you to just close your eyes. Close. I'm not calling anybody to suddenly begin living a monastic lifestyle for lots of reasons. But I think that the Lord wants me to ask myself and wants me to ask us, what's the next step for you? What's the next step for living in light of eternity? What's God bringing to mind? Sin is God exposing right now. Go ahead and invite the worship team up here. Just take a minute to do business with God. And I want to remind you that we have a great high priest. We have an advocate. We have a mediator. God doesn't bring this stuff up to condemn us. Perhaps to convict us, but not to condemn us. We have a great high priest. We have a mediator. We have one who stands between us and our Father and who is uh, willing to offer you forgiveness. So you think about next steps. Don't think, oh man, I'm feeling condemned. I need to, need to change my life. I want you to be able to repent but know that the Lord isn't looking at you right now saying, I wonder if he's going to turn. If he does, then I'll love him. The Lord is looking at us right now and saying, I died for those things. I love you guys. Father, we confess that None of us is living in light of eternity like we ought to. We can each take another step somewhere. I want to thank you that you have given your life, Lord Jesus. That you've been crucified for my failure to live in light of eternity. For my worship of the things of this world. My idolatry. Ask your forgiveness that I have not honored you like I should. And we receive your forgiveness, Lord, in Christ. Pray that our hearts would be strengthened and encouraged, and that you'd help us now to take another step. Pray all these things.